We're looking at Acts chapter 2 tonight, and shortly, really, Acts chapter 3, kind of where we left off last week. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to study this book of the New Testament. We ask your blessing upon us as we do. We pray you'll give us understanding and cause us to have a spirit of obedience and willingness to submit to your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we were looking at, uh, last time we finished up, looking at uh, Acts 2.42 through 47. We just started this section, the Christian mission of the Jewish world, the earliest days of the church of Jerusalem, 2.42 through 6.7. And we looked at what we called a thesis paragraph or a summary paragraph And in that summary paragraph, Luke just kind of summarizes what the church was involved in. Fellowship, uh, as we saw in verse 42, the breaking of bread. uh, It talks about the miracles that were performed and so forth. And as I said then, uh, they were meeting in the temple court still. Uh, That could be anywhere out here. Uh, There were some colonnades here. This was commonly called Solomon's Colonnade, Solomon's Porch Colonnade here. So they were meeting here in the temple. And now we have an example of that healing that was discussed or mentioned in that thesis paragraph, this crippled beggar heal, chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Um, it says in chapter 3, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. And I mentioned here there were three basic times that people really congregated for special prayers in the temple area, and that was early in the morning with the morning sacrifice at 3 p.m., and then at evening at sunset. So uh, they're going up at this particular time, There's no church buildings. They haven't started building any churches or anything. Churches don't, uh, you know, the earliest church building I think they've ever found, possibly, is around 250, the year 250. So there's no church buildings. Uh, We don't even have a church building, do we? We've got a ministry center. So don't, I hope I don't mess up, you know, and say, (laughs) the church, you know, here, because the pastor will be on there, you know. But, uh, you know, they didn't have any church buildings, so they had to meet where they could meet, as you folks did for many, many years, you know, wherever you could. And uh, so they're meeting here in the temple area. And verse 2, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. People have had some uh, question about exactly... What's the gate he was at? Where was he at? It says the gate called Beautiful, but it's not exactly clear to us. I have some discussion here about how that we don't know the exact location of this particular gate. Here's that model again. And there's three possibilities here for this particular gate called the, the, the Beautiful Gate. Um, there is this gate here, an eastern gate here, and a gate here, and a gate here, we'll see. Um, as I said, uh, say here, 
Um, no Jewish source uses the term beautiful gate. Christian tradition and some modern scholars identify with an entrance to the outer court of the eastern wall, which is commonly identified as the golden gate. Gold is derived from a mistranslation of a Greek word, which means beautiful, with a Latin word meaning golden. Uh, the Susa gate on the eastern side of Jerusalem facing the Mount of Olives. Today it's marked by the now closed Byzantine gate. As excavations in 71 and 72 revealed an earlier gate, seven to eight feet below the Byzantine gate, the lower gate equal in, to, in size to the latter was in use during Christ's times, and it could have been very the very gate mentioned in verse 2. So uh, one possibility is this gate right here, which I'll show you some pictures of, which is now sealed up. Uh, so this is this is the this is the uh, uh, this is the, the the platform on which the temple is built, and uh, this is the outer wall of the temple in Jesus' day in, in Herod's day, and this is this gate, this sometimes called the eastern gate. Some identify that gate as the beautiful gate. There's a couple of other gates. Here's the temple complex proper here. Excuse me, we saw it right here. This is the temple court. Anybody can walk in here. Anybody can come along here. But only Jews are allowed to go into this area. This is the court of the women here. And women can go in here. This gate, through this gate, is the court of the men. Only men can go in here. So some say this is the beautiful gate. Some say this is the beautiful gate. Some say that eastern gate. It's just hard to know what the beautiful gate is because no Jewish source says exactly what the beautiful gate is. So there's the, there's where some say the golden gate is, uh, right there. Here's that same temple mount on that model. Um, it, it extends out to here. This is where the fortress Antonio would have been outside the gate. It's, so it's hard to exactly vision, visualize that today from the model. It doesn't look exactly like that, but it's similar. Wes was here uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was asking me about that because it looks like this is like farmland over here or something. You know, it looks like that's not part of the Temple Mount, but it, it's just grown up. But this was originally designed, this was what this Temple Mount was designed to be. There's the Fortress Antonia, and this is the size of it. It's about... 1,500 foot uh, from north to south and 1,000 foot this way. That photograph doesn't show it exactly. So it's 1,500 foot, that temple mount. That's big. That's five football fields long <laughs> and 1,000 foot wide. So it's a huge area. When Herod the Great started, Herod the Great uh, doubled the size of the temple mount. So he brought in, he brought in dirt and filled this in <clears throat> because you had a valley over here. He didn't do anything to this wall, this eastern wall. He just expanded the north wall, the west wall, and the south wall and doubled the size. So some say this is the gate because this is the Mount of Olives here. And when I was reading that cryptic thing there, it says the problem with this is Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt many, many times. Destroyed and rebuilt. And the reason... People can do archaeology a day in the Middle East and places like that is. In ancient times, when people destroyed and rebuilt, they didn't clear away the rubble. They just built on top. Today, you know, you build something, you just dig down, 
to the foundations and you start rebuilding. And that's what happens in Israel today. That's how they discover things, a lot of things, is that today, if you build today in Israel, anywhere you want to do anything in Israel and here in Jerusalem, there's some archaeology guy right there with you. And if you find something, everything stops. The construction guys hate this. Everything just stops, and they start excavating, and they start looking and seeing what's going on there, what could possibly be beneath that. So so what we have here, these walls are probably a lot higher than they were in Jesus' day. And what I was referring to is right here below here, there's the remains of another gate. So this is the probably the eastern gate that Jesus will walk through, uh, but the original gate was a little lower here. You can kind of see it here. Here's the Kidron Valley. They do have snow in Jerusalem occasionally. And here's that eastern gate. It was sealed up. It's, this is a Muslim cemetery here. So no one can really do anything there. You can't really, ex- the Jews can't do any archaeological excavations there or anything. But there's the gate. The Jews sealed it up. I mean, the, the Muslims sealed it up in the, in the 1500s, completely sealed it. It used to be open occasionally at various times in history. And there it is there. Now, some people say that's the Golden Gate. That's the sun coming down on it right there. Other people say it's this gate right here, which is the gate to the court of the women. So any Israelite could come in here, women, men. This is the court of the men. Men could come in here, and here's the the door to the holy place, you know, and then ultimately the holy of holies. Only the priests could go in there. So... um, it's difficult to know what gate we're talking about. That golden gate, that, that eastern gate, this gate here, or this gate here. I mentioned various sources say different things. Uh, most scholars believe it to be the one of Corinthian bronze called the Nicanor Gate, funded by a wealthy Alexandrian Jew of that name. But even the location of the Nicanor Gate cannot be identified. Josephus, Josephus is a famous Jewish historian of this period. So you'll see, if you read anything in books and stuff, you'll see people talk about Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish man who lived during the time of Christ. He was a Jew, and uh, but when the Romans, you know, attacked Jerusalem, 66, put a siege to it, he went over to the Roman side <laughs> and fought with the Romans. He eventually had to retire to Rome and so forth. But he wrote a history of the Jews. He's one of our main sources of everything that happened Jewish and so forth. So he talks about, you can see on this model, they've got this kind of like, this is the Golden Gate. You see how they've got it kind of bronze there, you know, Corinthian bronze. They think, well, they're saying that could be it. So the Mishnah, you remember we said the Mishnah is the Jewish writing. Remember we said that uh, Jews had an oral tradition uh, Jesus refers to that oral tradition. In the year 200, they started writing that down. It's called the Mishnah, or the Oral Law, eventually written down part of the Talmud today. So the Jewish writing talks about this gate here, as I say here, uh, refers to it as the Nicanor Gate, but never uses the term beautiful. Joseph seems to place the gate at the entrance of the court of the women, leading to the court of Gentiles, while the Mishnah uh, places it on the west side of the court of the women. So, some some Jewish authorities put it here, some put it here. We're not sure. Where would that man be? Most likely, you would think he would be 
somewhere here or maybe outside the temple area. You know, if you're going to try to get the maximum funds, you know, if you're going to beg, uh, you want to be where the most people are at. You know, you want to be on the street corner like we see around, you know, our area. We even see people out there, you know, on the street corner, and they, they want to be where the traffic is, you know, they can be. So this, this could be a good place right here, and that's where they have it. We're not exactly sure where uh, this uh, was was located at, but po- possibly one of those two. So uh, Peter comes up and says, uh, well, the man says, when he saw Peter and John, he asked them for money. Verse 4, Peter looked straight and said at him, as did John, Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, verse 6, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk. He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here's an undeniable miracle. Now later on we'll see that the religious leaders say, if we could deny this thing, we would. We'd love to deny it, but we just can't because this man has been there practically his whole life begging. Everybody knows he's lame and he can't walk, and so... This is just an absolute, very notable, <clears throat> undeniable kind of miracle. The kind of miracles that Jesus performed. So these these attest the messenger. Remember, the purpose of these miracles is to attest the messenger and the message. This is going to make people listen and see what Peter has to say because of this tremendous miracle. And that leads then to uh, uh, Peter's sermon in Solomon's Colonnade. I'm sorry, 311 through 26. Uh We won't take time to look at all the details here, but we can divide this sermon or this message into a couple of sections. First, a proclamation section, 12 through 16, where he's proclaiming the truth, talking about Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, that's the whole point. And then there's a call to repentance section, 17 through 26. So first of all, there is the proclamation section, 12 through 16. Uh, while the man came, uh, held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, verse 12, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? If we made our, if by our own power, our godliness, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So this proclamation section, as I say, is sort of an exposition a discussion, an exposition, a proclamation on the name of Jesus, verse 16. Remember, he says, by faith in the name of Jesus. Remember, the name stands for the person. So faith in the name of Jesus means faith in Jesus, who he was, 
and what he did, what he, who he was, the son of God, and so forth. And he brings out some of those points here in this particular sermon. Uh, the focus, as I say here, is on God's servant, whom Israel disowned, but God raised from the dead. He's referred here in, in the sermon by a number of messianic titles. That is, people familiar with the Old Testament would hear what Peter is saying and hear that he's referring to various titles in the Old Testament that are used of the Messiah. For instance, uh, as I show here, he's, he's uh, uh, the, the title servant. Uh, Isaiah 42, um, uh, Isaiah 52, 13, Isaiah 53, 12. <laughs> Uh, holy One, uh, Righteous One. These are titles uh, that are used of the Messiah. Um, you're familiar, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53 especially, you remember, which talks about the servant. But that starts, that passage, it was, I'll take a look at that a little more closely later here. But that passage uh, in Isaiah... Uh, that Isaiah 53 comes from, it starts uh, uh, in Isaiah chapter 42. And this uh, this section, Isaiah 42 and following, is usually called something like the servant songs or the servant hymns. It's about God's servant, and it's talking about the Messiah here. And so uh, he uses the title servant. Uh, remember, here is... Uh, Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, whom I delight. Isaiah 42, 1, going through verse 9. And we're all familiar with, uh, you know, chapter 52 especially. And then that famous section in chapter 53, um, Peter says, see my servant, Isaiah says, Isaiah 52, 13, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted and highly exalted. Jesus, uh, just as there as as there were many who were appalled at him, Isaiah fifty two thirteen. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. So here we're talking the Messiah being bruised, being you know as we know crucified. Isaiah fifty one. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, and he talks about this servant here. So people in the Old Testament were very familiar with this concept of the servant in Isaiah. And so when Peter uses that language here, as he does, they pick up here that he's talking about the Messiah. You handed him over. You disowned this one, this servant, as he says. He calls him, uh, in verse uh, 14, the righteous one. The righteous one. Uh, he calls him the holy one here in verse 41. You disowned the holy and the righteous one. Uh, these are also titles. The Holy One, Psalm 1610, Isaiah 31. Uh, the Righteous One, Isaiah 53. So I'm just emphasizing that these are Messianic titles. And Peter picks up on those titles and says, uh, this is this Jesus whom you crucified and was raised again on the third day. And so he says, by faith in his name. Remember, it's not a magical formula. Uh, you know, it's not that you can just, you know, as we see sometimes, unfortunately, uh, people have kind of, you know, you see on TV, sometimes you see some preachers and stuff, you see some stuff going on TV where 
it's sort of like a magic formula. You know, if I just say this name, then suddenly uh, the name itself, it's not that the letters J-E-S, I hope I, you don't think I'm too, uh, too sacrilegious here, but it's not that the name J-E-S-U-S in itself is that special. Uh, when he says the name of Jesus, he means the person of Jesus. Um, the name Jesus actually was a very common name in the New Testament times because Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the name Joshua. So Joshua is the Hebrew, uh, Jehovah saves, and Jesus is just the Greek form of that. So many Jewish people name their children Joshua after the great leader in the time of Moses, Joshua. And so they named their, just like in, you know, Hispanic, when I was growing up, there was a baseball player, and his name was Jesus Salud. But they weren't allowed to say his name was Jesus Salud on American TV. <laughs> They said, you know, it was Jesus the Luke. It was J-E-S-U-S, but they were not allowed to say Jesus the Luke because that was upsetting to Americans who think there was only one person in the universe who had ever had the name J-E-S-U-S, you know. So it's not those particular combination of constant and vowels. When we say the name of Jesus, when he says, it's, it's not that you can just say Jesus on somebody and that will be some magic formula. Now, there's people who have thought that, even in the book of Acts. You know, later on, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is at Ephesus, he encounters some people. Acts 19, 13, you remember? He encounters some people, and uh, and then uh, Luke records a situation after Paul has done all this healing. It says in verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they thought it was some sort of magic formula, you know. Seven sons of Siva, Jewish priests, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But about you, who are you? <laughs> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So, you know, there's nothing, you just can't say the name of Jesus and, and miracles are going to happen. It takes, it's, we're talking about the authority of Jesus. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. It's by faith in Jesus, who he was, the Son of God, the Savior, and what he did. He died on the cross and so forth. It's by that name, by that message, by that truth that this man has been completely healed as you see now. It wasn't any particular faith on the man's part, you know. This man wasn't healed because he was a great believer or something. This was just a miracle. <laughs> this was just a demonstration of the power of God showing that Peter was the apostle. He was a man who's speaking for God. So he has this uh, proclamation section where he explains who Jesus is. He's the Messiah that you rejected. You disowned this one. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 17, we have this uh, call to repentance sections. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And as we talked about, the Old Testament predicted this. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, 
as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band against the Lord and against his anointed saying and so forth. And remember Psalm 22, 1. My Lord, my Lord, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the fact that the Messiah would suffer is clearly talked about in the Old Testament. And Peter's saying, this is not something that should be totally surprising. Now, admittedly, the Jews uh, were looking at one picture. There is the picture in the, in the Old Testament of the Messiah as king. And in, the New, and in the Old Testament, there's the Messiah as the suffering servant. So it is a little bit conflicting. It is a little difficult. And if you look at uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm sure you spend your time like I have reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, but if you were to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you would find that they talk about two messiahs. They believe in two different messiahs coming. One, a you know a servant kind of messiah, and one a kingly kind. They, they think there are two messiahs. And so you can see it's a little confusing. How do you put that servant together with that king together? And they were looking for that king to come set up his kingdom Jesus disappointed there in that sense. Now, we know it's easy for us looking back to say, okay, the suffering servant came, died, and suffered, and then one day he'll come back as the king. But it wasn't, it wasn't as easy for, for them as it is for us. But, but Peter says that was in the Old Testament, and so forth. It was foretold that the Messiah would suffer. Verse 19, therefore he says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses uh, said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he says. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from the people. So, uh, Peter says that uh, he is the Messiah. He's the same one that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 13. I'm going to raise up a prophet like me, and you should listen to him. Unfortunately, they have not listened to him. Well, now we come to uh, chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 31, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. This miracle is very upsetting to the religious authorities. What does that say? Man, religious authorities are upset. Here's a tremendous healing that's taken place. A great miracle has taken place. And they're very upset by this. Notice what we read in chapter 4. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Now there are various groups here we probably should say something about. First of all, he says the priest, the priest and then the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Now the priests are the are the run of the mill Aaronic priesthood. Remember the priests were the sons of Aaron. Well, by the New Testament time, there's a lot of these descendants of Aaron. Aaron had children, and his children had children. <laughs> there's a lot of priests. Now, there's there's Levites, 
That's the priestly family. There's Levites. But within the priests, within the Levites, there's Aaron's family. Just ironic priests. These are the people who served at the priest, offering the sac- in the temple, so offering the sacrifice in the holy place, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest went in once a year, so forth. As I say, these are divided into 24 uh, courses, 24 weeks. The Jewish year has 48 weeks. It's not, it's not on a solar calendar, it's on a lunar calendar. So it has 48 weeks. And so a priest... Uh, a, a, a priest could serve uh, a, a priest, priestly clan, a priestly division could serve possibly twice a year. What I mean is this: remember, remember this uh, passage, Luke chapter one. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a man named Zechariah who belonged to the police priestly division of Abijah. That's what I mean when I said it was divided into twenty-four courses, twenty-four divisions. So. This man was a priest. Uh, John the Baptist's father was a priest. And he was in the priestly division of Abijah. The division of Abijah served for one week twice a year. So they might be living somewhere else even, somewhere. But twice a year, you'd be in Jerusalem, this this priestly uh, group. And they would come and serve in the temple for a week, so twice a year. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty, one of those weeks out of the year, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by the lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So you've got all these ironic priesthoods, uh, priests of the tribe of uh, the division of Abijah here, and they choose by lot. Okay. Who gets to actually go in and offer a soccer? You don't need many. You know, you got hundreds of these people. So you choose by lot, and one of them goes in there and serves. And once you do it, that's it for the rest of your life. You're out. You, you, you've done your one-time thing, and there's so many other people that you're out. And that's what we're talking about here. So there's these priests, a tremendous number of these priests. There's the captain of the temple guard. As I say this, he was the second in command of the high priest. And usually became the next high priest. It sounds like a strange title for the assistant high priest to be called the captain of the temple guard. He was responsible for the conduct of worship and external arrangements in the temple, as well as being the head of the chief priest. So these divisions, the division of Abijah, would have a priest over them, a chief priest. So you've got these chief priests... And then on top of them, you've got some bureaucracy, but you've got this captain of the temple guard, who's usually the son of the high priest, and then you've got the high priest. You've got this bureaucracy here. He he was also head of a Levitical police force, which arrested the apostles in Acts 5. See, later in Acts 5, we'll see that they get arrested, um, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin and so forth. Um. As I say here, uh, Jesus in Matthew, uh, they were, let's see, he also was the head of the police in Acts 5. Um, they also probably guard the tomb of Jesus in Matthew 26, Matthew 27. Um, that is, they arrested Jesus and brought him before the, uh, and guarded the tomb. So it's difficult to to imagine this, but these priests 
had like a little military. They were like a little huh, Levitical police force. So the Romans didn't generally do anything in the temple area unless something happened bad, and then they would come down from the fortress Antonia, like when Paul was going to be killed. They would come down, and but basically they left this to the to the Levites, to the erotic priesthood, to these to the San, to these uh, captain of the temple guard, the high priest, to run the temple area. And uh, they had this Levitical police force. These are the ones who probably arrested Jesus. Um, Matthew, uh, in, the go- in the Gospel of Matthew, it's not, probably maybe hadn't been perfectly clear to you in the past, and it does, the text is not perfectly clear on this, but it does say in Matthew 26, um, Matthew 26, I keep saying Matthew 26, but Matthew 27, um, well, in Matthew uh 26, Jesus is arrested um, and brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, we're told in Matthew 26, um, beginning in 47, we have Jesus arrested and, and therefore these are probably the people who arrested Jesus and took him before the Sanhedrin and so forth. These are not Romans in, in Matthew 26 and after Gethsemane and so forth. Um it says in Matthew twenty six forty seven, while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with with armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So these are probably the people. The man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And then they take Jesus to the Sanhedrin. They took him to Caiaphas in verse thirty seven, uh, verse uh, fifty seven. So these are probably the people, this uh, Levitical priesthood there in, who are maintaining order. They are the people who arrested Jesus. They're probably the people who are guarding the tomb. It's, it's not exactly clear, but probably true. I think it's true. Uh, I mentioned Matthew twenty-seven sixty-five, um, Reading in verse 62 of Matthew 27, it says, The next day, this is uh, after the death of Jesus, He's been buried. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate, 2763. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, they're talking about Jesus, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead, this last deception will be worse than the first. And so Peter say, uh, Pilate says, Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Uh, so a guard is then taken, some soldiers are taken, and they're taken to the tomb. And you remember after Jesus... Uh, is resurrected in Matthew 28, um, verse 11. It says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, 
You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Uh, these, again, most likely were these Levitical soldiers and not Roman soldiers. And there's several reasons for that. It's a little difficult to know about verse 65. In verse 65, the NIV says here, Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know. Now, if you look at the King James, or the New American Standard, or the ESV, here it says, it doesn't say take a guard. It says you have a guard. You have a guard. Which kind of applies, you've got some soldiers, you know, go make the tomb as secure. I think that's probably right here. I think that's probably right. It could be either way. Uh, I mean, if he, even if he said take a guard, he could be saying take some of your soldiers. We don't know. You might wonder, how could this mean <laughs> you have a guard or take a guard? It can. It's just strange. The same Greek word, the same Greek word can mean you have a guard or it can mean take a guard exactly the same so you know that's why we have translations that differ here because a translator has to decide is this the indicative is this making a statement is Pilate saying hey uh, you have a guard you've got some soldiers or take a guard making a command which could be his could be Roman soldiers the reason I don't think it's Roman soldiers is because these Jewish leaders convinced the Roman soldiers to lie if they're Roman soldiers to lie that's unlikely that Roman soldiers would lie and risk losing their life, you know. A, a soldier who, you remember what happens later on when when some when the disciples escape and, you know, the the governor puts these soldiers to death. <laughs> so uh, Roman soldiers are not likely to lie to help a bunch of Jewish people, you know, cover up what's going on here. These are probably, again, these Levitical police force. So this thing is quite an operation. You've got the temple run by the high priest, then you've got the captain of the temple guard. Uh, the captain of the temple guard at this time, if you'll notice in Acts chapter 4 again, it says later that uh, Annas, the chief priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. This John is uh, the one that Josephus says is the son of the high priest, and he became the next high priest. So this is how it usually works. The captain of the temple guard is usually the, he's the son of the high priest, and then the high priest dies or whatever, and and this, the captain of the temple guard becomes the high priest. That's probably what's happening here. This John was the son of Annas and succeeded his brother-in-law Caiaphas as high priest in AD 36, so a little after the death of Jesus. And then we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees. The chief, the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. So I say here, this is the first party, the first Jewish party, to persecute the church. So Jewish religion had various, sometimes they're called sects, you know, divisions. They had different ways of interpreting the Old Testament. We know about the Pharisees. You got the Sadducees. We know that at Qumran, the Dead Sea, there's the Essenes there. 
there's zealots, there's, there's a lot of different kind of groups who are all Jewish, but they have a little different take, you know, on how to interpret the Old Testament. Here's, here's one party, the Sadducees, that say they were the first group to persecute. They were named Sadducees because they claimed to be descended from Zadok, the chief priest of the time of King David and Solomon. They consisted of the wealthy aristocratic families who controlled the office of the high priest and were the priestly leaders. They controlled land in and around Jerusalem. They did not believe in the resurrection, according to verse 2. It says, They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a personal Messiah. They held to a messianic ideal, a messianic age that began with the Maccabeans. The... Um, the Maccabeans refers to a group of family, uh, a family that, that ultimately uh, in the 100 years before Christ, uh, 150 years before Christ, uh, rebelled against their foreign oppressors and built an independent Jewish state. Um, around 160 or so, 165, the Jews were under the control of the Syrians or the Seleucids. Uh, so they were they were being dominated by a foreign power. They ultimately revolted. A family called the Maccabeans led this revolt. And so around 150, they started building an independent state. And they lived as an independent country and state and kingdom until the Romans came in and conquered them. Pompey come in, came in and so forth, and it came under Roman control. So in the New Testament time, they're under Roman control. The Sadducees and the Pharisees go back to about that period. Historically, we can trace them back to around 150 or so B.C. So they claimed that they were uh, descended from the Maccabeans and so forth. They rejected the oral law, which the Pharisees held to be authoritative, However, they were more open to certain Hellenistic influences and were politically oriented. Now, when I say Hellenistic, I mean Greek, uh, Greek influences, or that is the culture. The Greek term for Greek is, is, uh, is Hellene. So, Greek, Greek and Greek is this. So uh, you can talk about New Testament Greek or you can talk about Hellenistic Greek. It's the Greek of the New Testament. And so we talk about Hellenistic culture. That was the culture of the day. So uh, I don't know if you're, if you're that, familiar, that, that familiar with world history, but remember in the 4th century, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. And he spread Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek everything throughout the, the known world. And so there was a tremendous uh, pressure on Jews to adopt these, this Hellenistic culture. It's the same problem Christians face today. We have our culture around us. We're tempted to buy into that culture. Jews were tempted to buy into the Greek culture. The Pharisees didn't buy into it like that. The Sadducees did. They were from the wealthy aristocratic families. They collaborated with Rome more. They bought into the culture. They were concerned about political power. They controlled the priesthood. They controlled the temple and so forth. 
they were a very powerful group. They controlled the Sanhedrin. Now, in the Sanhedrin, you had Pharisees and Sadducees, but Sadducees made up the, the, the dominating number. The Pharisees were more influential with the people. Pharisees were lay people. They were laymen, like you, like it. They were just lay people who worked a job. Of course, does Ed work? No, it didn't. So, I got to stop picking on Ed, you know, that's bad. You know. He's really my boss, you know, and I got to stop picking on him. So, anyway, uh, they were lay people. They weren't, they weren't professional priests or anything. And uh, they, might, they might be anything, like Paul, a tent maker. So, they, could, they have a trade and something like that. And uh, their leaders were, uh, were often called scribes. They believe in what's called the oral law. Remember that? Halakha, that Mishnah that was written down. Um, so they believed that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he brought those Ten Commandments, that's all the law said, Moses is the only person to break Ten Commandments at one time. <laughs> so when, when Moses came down from, from, the, from Sinai, they believed that he also gave an oral interpretation that was passed on. So they believe that you have to know the written law, but also the oral law. This oral law, which was originally written down, was written down beginning in 200, became what part of the Talmud today. The religion of Judaism today is the descendant of the Pharisees. The Sadducees, we don't know anything about the Sadducees except what others tell us. We don't have any Sadducean documents, we don't have any Sadducean anything. We just know what the other side tells us. And we know what uh, what sources tell us, Roman sources and others, Jewish sources, Josephus tells us. But we don't really have any Sadducean sources because what happened was when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, their religion died. Their sect died because they were concerned with the temple, everything about the temple. They controlled the temple. There was no temple. So the reason for their existence kind of went out of existence. And so... What's left over were the Pharisees, and they continued on into the Middle Ages and produced what's called medieval Judaism or rabbinic Judaism, and that's the kind of Judaism we still have today. So the Sadducees were very, very strong in that day. They're very influential, but they didn't survive the destruction of the temple. But the church fathers, Christians tell us about them, Romans tell us about them, and they have... And we don't know if everything they say is true. One of the things you read about the Sadducees, I read, I told you some of the stuff here that I think we clearly is true. That is, they didn't believe in a messianic person, but an ideal. They rejected the oral law. Sometimes they're contrasted as liberals versus the, the Pharisees are conservatives. That's true in many ways, but in some ways the Sadducees were more conservative in the sense that they didn't accept that oral tradition. They just accepted the Bible. And sometimes you read. Uh, um, some of the church fathers say they only accept the Pentateuch. If you, read, if you look up about the Sadducees, sometimes you'll see an article and say, the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch. I'm not sure that's true or not. Uh, the church fathers say it, but we don't, we don't have any historical records that say that. It seems unlikely that there would be a Jewish people who wouldn't accept the whole Old Testament. That, that seems a little strange to me, but you'll, you'll read that sometime. But we, everything we know, we're getting from other sources. But they're very powerful here, as we'll see. They're controlling things. Now, as I'll, we'll talk about the Pharisees later, they're a minority in the Sanhedrin, but a powerful minority that people listen to. 
So they seized Peter and John, verse 3, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. They had to put them in jail probably because it was late. Jewish law forbade a night trial. You couldn't have a night trial. had to be in the open daylight. So they probably put them in jail to wait till the next day um, so they could try them. But, they're, but again, the church is continuing to grow. As I mentioned on page 15, it says, and it says in the NIV here, uh, the number of men who believe. And this is actually the word for males alone. So, you know, that's a lot of people here. The next day, verse 5, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now, this expression, rulers, elders, and teachers of the law, is a term, a way to say the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Senate, as I say, and Supreme Court of the nation. So it's kind of a judicial, legislative, combined uh, entity. Uh, it had jurisdiction in all non-capital cases. From what we can understand, the Romans generally reserved the right to capital punishment to themselves. Now, sometimes things got out of hand, like when Stephen is stoned. You know, in theory, that was illegal, but it's not like the the, the Romans are going to be so upset because some Jew got killed, right? I mean, they're not going to have a terrible hissy fit about that one. But uh, they're not supposed to, technically, the Jews are not allowed, from what we read, to uh, have the power of capital punishment. <clears throat> but they had jurisdiction. Uh, now, we understand, I've, we read these sources that say that the Romans did allow one exception, that is, if somebody crossed the barrier and went into the, the, the Jewish temple, if somebody went into the Jewish temple, then he could be executed immediately. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members plus the high priest. So 71 people. 70 members and the high priest made up the Sanhedrin. It's made up of rulers. These are also called chief priests, like Matthew 16, 21. They included the captain of the temple guard, the leaders of the 24 weekly courses we've talked about, and certain other officials associated with the administration of the temple. Now, these people, from what we read in Josephus, were mostly Sadducees. Sadducees seem to have all the power here in running the temple. And then there's the elders, tribal and family heads of the people who were, again, mostly Sadducees. You generally had to declare your allegiance here. You know, you've got to be a Democrat, got to be a Republican if you're going to be in politics, you know. Unless you're Bernie Sanders, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But generally you had to declare one of these particular families. And sometimes people switched. Sometimes people went to one and switched to the other. You know, it was it was not these were, you know, these were just political decisions sometimes. The elders, we said, and then the teachers of the law, also called scribes or lawyers in some translations, who were experts in the interpretation of the law. Most of these people were Pharisees. All the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin at this time were scribes. So remember I said that the leaders of the Pharisees, a Pharisee might just be a Jew who has a farm somewhere outside Jerusalem, but he subscribed to the Pharisee way of interpreting things. But they had certain people who were well-trained, uh, very well-trained. They were called scribes. They still had a trade and so forth, but these were the leaders. And, uh, you know, we... 
we usually use the title rabbi, especially later on. Rab, these are called rabbis. And these were the people who were, we know for certain, were in the Sanhedrin. These Pharisees who were scribes were the ones who were part of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is meeting. Verse 6, Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas. I mentioned Annas. He was the former high priest who had been deposed by the Romans. Still powerful as head of a, the high priestly family, and he's still called high priest. So it says Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others. Now, Caiaphas was technically the high priest at this time. He may have been controlled by Annas, but Annas is still called the high priest. It's like, you know, people still retain their titles, sometimes like President Clinton, President Bush. We still call them president, even though they're not president. They're still kind of retain that title. So the high priest would still retain that title, even though technically he had been disposed. And, and, and the Jews didn't like that. The Romans didn't have any right to depose the high priest, but they did, and, and the Jews didn't have... But anyway, his son... They put his son in power, and his son may be, you know, controlling him possibly here. Uh, verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or by what name did you do this? And this power, this right to accept, this is legitimate. Remember Deuteronomy 13, Moses talks about the fact that if, if a prophet comes up, you know, after me, you've got to examine, you just... You just don't let anybody come into Israel and say anything. You've got to examine them and make sure they're speaking according to the law. Make sure they're speaking according to Jewish truth and so forth, the, the Bible. So they had the right to examine him, and they did that. Well, Peter then speaks. Peter then, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all this people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter is defending himself. He wants to escape the condemnation of Deuteronomy 13. He could be put to death if he's not speaking true according to the Bible. So he's saying, I'm talking, I'm leading you to the true Messiah, not, I'm not leading you outside Jewish religion. This is the true Messiah. This is the one Moses talked about. So he quotes here Psalm 118, 22 here. Psalm 118, 22. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Um, Jesus had applied this to himself. I mentioned in Matthew twenty-one forty-two, and Jesus is is talking to the religious leaders. Um, I thought I would read this. Um, This is uh, the parable of the tenants. I wish I had time to read the whole parable, but I won't, won't do that. You remember this parable talks about a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he rented the vineyard to some farmers. He moved to another place. The tenants seized, uh, he put his servants in charge. 
these people uh, seized his servants. They beat them. They killed them. So this landlord sends back some more people to find out what's happened. And they kill those people, mistreat them. Last of all, he sent his son. So this is all a parable about Jesus, you know, that God sent the prophets and he sent these people to Israel and they rejected them. And last of all, this landlord sent his son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to him, this is the heir, come and kill him. And we'll get his inheritance and so forth. And uh, he will bring, and so they, they do that. And Jesus says, verse 42, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus takes this psalm and refers it to himself. And that's what Peter is doing here in uh, Acts chapter 4 here. He's, he's saying that's him. And he does it, and I mentioned uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, he does the same thing. He says... Uh, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are like living stones, built up to a holy priesthood. For the scripture says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now to the one, now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who, who do not believe, then he quotes again, here, Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the stone or cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. So, uh, Peter is saying, listen, I'm not leading people into apostasy here. I'm not violating what Moses said in Deuteronomy 13. I am doing exactly, I'm telling you exactly what the Old Testament said. This Jesus is the Messiah who was rejected and you have rejected, you have rejected him. And and the and, and the and the part that's so amazing here, he says, is salvation in verse twelve. Here's that well-known verse: is found in no one else. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? There's no salvation in Allah. There's no salvation in Buddha. There's no salvation in anyone else. It says. And no one else, there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of Christ and for who he is. Thank you, Father, that it's through him that we have entrance into heaven. He is the only Savior. Help us to be faithful to proclaim that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll stop here for tonight. Thank you very much.